Thanks for tuning in to the New Life South Coast podcast. We want to extend an invitation to sit in live with us during our weekend service. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope that this message inspires you, but also challenges you in your walk with God. For more information, visit our website at newlifesouthcoast.com. Thank you so much for welcoming me the way you have. I'm going to try to keep it together. You got me all emotional, the whole... I love my city. More so, I love the Lord. I love what Jesus is doing right now. It's happening, and you're all part of this movement, and I'm blessed to be part of it too. So, I appreciate the introduction, but as we say, I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody that can save anybody. That's our job, right? That's our job. My heart, as Pastor Marco and I, we get together time to time, we talk, we pray, tells me what's going on with you guys, the building, all the beautiful things, the souls being saved here, and and I love hearing about it. But one of the things I always share with him is my passion for discipleship, to be and make disciples is our tagline over at South Coast. And that's our focus, right, because... There's this quote I'm going to share with you, but I'll ruin it now. Mike Breen, he says, if, if you build a church, you'll rarely get disciples. But if you build disciples, you'll always get the church. I was looking at, at, at your video with all the crews, 56. Man, that's great. 500 people in these small groups doing life together. That's what this is. That's what discipleship is. So the title of my sermon today is Love God, Love Others, Make Disciples. This is actually the irreducible core of of us, the church, Christianity. You can do no less than this according to Scripture. Rest assured, you can do plenty more, but you can do no less than love God, love others, and make disciples. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Walking with Jesus is about learning to live, the life, live life the way He did. Right? So at the very heart of all He did and taught was love. So if we're going to learn to live as Christ did, then we're going to have to learn to love as Christ did. This is all meant to happen again in the context of community. And I don't mean just this community here, which is beautiful. Absolutely need to get together, right? It says don't forsake the coming together in, in Hebrews 10. But we're supposed to spill out and we're supposed to touch our community around us with the love of Christ. One of my favorite pastors is, uh, is a man named Francis Chan. And he wrote this book called Crazy Love, and and we're actually going through it again. I think it's probably about 20-something times I've read this book, you know, because it it challenges me more and more every time. And, And, you know, the more you grow, the more you need to be filled, the more you need to know that this is never-ending, that this sanctifying work that, that God is doing in each of us is continuous until that day, Scripture says. But Chan says, God's definition of what matters is pretty straightforward. He measures our lives by how we love. He measures our lives by how we love. I want to I go to Matthew chapter 22, and I want to I 
share how Jesus speaks about this very topic. So if you have a Bible, a phone, or whatever you use, we're going to go to verse 34. I'm going to read right through to 40. It says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. So Jesus had just shut down one religious political group, and now they're getting nervous. The Pharisees huddle up. One of them, a lawyer, an expert on the law and religion, he asked him a question, testing him, it says. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. He brought it back to Deuteronomy and Leviticus. These guys are experts on the law, right? So he moves this conversation from rules to relationship. He went from do's and don'ts to freedom. He moved from legalism to love. These men had been studying their whole lives and waving it in the face of God's people. But Jesus minimizes their religion into this one simple statement. One that would disarm them, anger them, and even challenge them to rethink everything they knew. So I want to look at this love first. Because if this is the foundation of what we do and why we do, then we need to understand this love. It's not this emotional or rainbows and butterfly Valentine's Day love that we're used to. We've created this love that caters to us, that's self-serving, self-seeking, self-centered. But this love is way different. So we're going to talk about what loving God and others is. And the first point is, is it's a holistic love. Holistic, meaning it's all of your being. He says it's with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And it removes any inclination of loving in this sort of compartmentalized manner, right? A lot of times we, we reserve our love for moments and for the people we think deserve it or for when it's easy. But he takes that away. He says, all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all the time. It's constant. It's consistent. And it means loving him first and foremost in and above all these other things. So that means bringing him into our finances, our time, our relationships, our jobs, and everything else that we endeavor in this life. We don't leave it out. We bring it in. Christ should be at the center of all we do and all that we are, and everyone should know him because they know us. Hydrate. <laughs> the second point is, is that it's not a religious love. It's not a religious type of love. It's an intimate, devoted, trusting type of love. It's about relationship. 
He's inviting us in, as Pastor said, into this relationship with Him, this love relationship with Him, not this religious relationship that many of us maybe have known before we came to know the true Christ. Right? We spent all these years doing these Christian and Catholic aerobics, you know? And we knew when to stand and sit and kneel and all these other things. It was Macarena time. But we didn't know Him. So we knew more about the church and the religion than we did about the Savior. And He's the point of it all. And so He's inviting us into this intimacy. And then this love that we have with Him should flow into all of our relationships with others. And if we lack love for others, then we lack love for God. And it's that simple. There's a scripture in 1 John chapter 4, and it's harsh sometimes, right? Because some people get under your skin, don't they? (laughs) Repentance is after service. (laughs) 1 John 4.20, it says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, For the one who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God God, who he hasn't seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. This is a commandment. It's not a suggestion. If we're his, then we follow him. We listen. We follow these commandments, right? We love those hard people, right? Right? trailing with me okay you see it's it's not just about singing praise and worship in church i mean it's beautiful this morning listen to all your voices i was so tempted just to stand in the front and look back because i love seeing that heavenly choir you know i love to see all the different faces and the different backgrounds everybody coming together with their hands raised and their voices raised just singing praises to god together get used to it that's what heaven's all about But it's also about living a life of praise and worship. You know, he, he died for us, so we need to live for him. It's that simple. Romans 12, verse 1, it says, living holy sacrifice. That is our job. That's our reasonable worship. Our reasonable worship, Paul says. It's the least you can do is live this life of sacrifice for God. Be a walking, talking symbol of praise and worship. A life of gratitude. You know, I was thinking, as, as Pastor again was speaking, you know, what's next week? What's today? Today was the day he rode in on a donkey. You know? All the palms and everybody's, Hosanna, Hosanna, praising him. In, in five days, they'll be screaming, nail him. And he knew that. And he still loved. And he didn't stop. You know, Easter, Easter is like it for us. Like he said, we might as well go to IHOP. I love that because that's the truth. If not, we're just getting together to sing. We're a cult. 
But we're, 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 it's Christ in him crucified, Paul says. So Easter, that's like our Super Bowl, World Series, Christmas, birthday, everything else rolled into one. That's the day. That's the day. The death was overcome. That's the day. Religion says, I love this, Tim Keller, he's great, man. He says, religion says, if I obey, then God will love and accept me. You know, the gospel says, I'm loved and accepted, therefore I obey. Right? It's not our merit, it's not our acts, it's not our good works that, that bring us to that place of salvation and relationship with God. It's the work that Christ did on that cross, and there's nothing we can do to undo that. Nothing. Nothing we can do can diminish that work. That act of love was greater than any sin, any person, or all of us collectively could commit in this room at this moment. That's who our Savior is. That's how good our God is. That's how great His love is. And that's what we're called into together. There is a cold, stale religion that is being circulated, and it has been since Christ left. And it steals our relationship with God. James, in chapter 1, he says, in verse 27, he says, pure and undefiled religion that pleases the Father. Pure and undefiled that pleases the Father is loving those in need, orphans and widows and anybody else. And that's our call. Our call is to love people who need it the most. So our next point, it's a selfless and sacrificial love. Selfless and sacrificial. So there's a story in Luke chapter 10, right? Verses 25 through 37 if you're you're taking notes. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. So again, here we go. We got another expert on the law testing Jesus one more time. He says, what must I do? What do I got to do to inherit this eternal life you're talking about? And Jesus says, well, what does it say in the law? Smarty pants. (laughs) (laughs) And the lawyer says, love God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, yeah, that's good. You're right. And then in verse 29, I love this part. This is where religious people and Jesus' people differ. This is where we separate. In verse 29, it says, wishing to justify himself, because he obviously failed at this, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a parable. He says, you know, this guy, he falls among robbers. He's he's stripped, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And he says, not one, but two religious leaders, a priest and then a Levite, walk by and they do nothing. They see this man laying in the gutter, half dead, and they walk by and they probably cross the street. You ever see that happen around here? And then this Samaritan comes along. 
He sees this man in dire need. He, he has compassion, it says, and he fixes up his wounds. He throws him over his ox or whatever they drove back then. And, and then he brings him to an inn to be cared for. He leaves him there and he, and he says, whatever the tab is, I got it. I'll be back for him. You know, and I love this, right? Because these religious people, if you know anything about Judaism 2,000 years, 2000 years ago, Samaritans were less than. They were looked down on. They were dirty people that you did not associate with. You know, at the end of John 3, you see where Jesus wraps up his conversation with Nicodemus and then he, he says that he heads straight through Samaria because he had an appointment with a woman there at a well. See, Jesus didn't follow their rules because traditionally what they do is they would walk 10 miles around Samaria. Walk 10 miles around Samaria. Listen, I don't even like driving 10 miles around something. You've got to have some deep hatred for somebody if you're walking 10 miles extra. That's hate. That's religion. So Jesus asks this expert now, he says, which one was a neighbor to this man? And the lawyer says, the one who showed mercy on him. He couldn't deny it in that context, could he? And that's why Jesus uses the Samaritan, and that's why he uses the religious people, because he's trying to hold up a mirror to this guy. This is not what this was supposed to be. This selfless, sacrificial love crosses cultural boundaries, religious boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, and any other boundary that we create as man. So when you love your neighbor as God commands, you don't try to pre-qualify them or ask whether or not they deserve your love. God doesn't do that with us. He withheld nothing from us. None of us deserve that love. Nothing. And then he sent Jesus to the cross. So let me ask you a question, church. Who is your neighbor? Everyone. I'm going to ask you that again. Who is your neighbor? Okay, good. I'm in the right place today. Woo. Matthew 25, it says, we're loving him when we love the least of these. I love that statement, the least of these. I don't even know what that means. Because <laughs> we're the lowest. So how do we even elevate ourselves above anyone else and call them less than? My question is, is are we loving Jesus? Is our lives telling other people that we love Jesus? Right? Are we loving those people who need it the most, especially them? And I don't just mean the needy people. I'm talking about the difficult people again. I'm talking about that, that co-worker who won't leave you alone. Those people who make fun of you because of your faith. Those people who laugh at you when you talk about him. You still got to love them too. He did not say argue them into the kingdom of God. He said love them back to life. And that's what we're called to do. Love them back to life, church. Jesus was willing to cross any barrier to reach the lost. And if we're chasing after him and aspiring to live as he did, then we need to be willing to cross these barriers too. And that's the call. 
So it's time, we, the church, we stop thinking we're better than others and start remembering that without Jesus, without the cross, we're just as lost as anybody else. There was a saying I heard, I spent about a year in Teen Challenge. Actually, it would be 10 years in August that I walked across, walked through that doorway. Yeah. Praise God. Hmm. 10 years of grace, 10 years of, of God rescuing me from death, and now here I am talking about him, you know, just a nobody, right? But I heard this quote, and, I, and I'll never forget it. it, was when I first got home, because I remember all the religious people I knew, they were really kind of this, had this religious superiority, they looked down on me, they talked less to me, they, I was a drug addict, I was an alcoholic, so they just thought I was some loser, another burden, oh great, what's this dude need now, Right? But I'll never forget, I heard this, and it was just so beautiful, because this is the truth. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, and it says, we are just one beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. That's it. That's our job. And if we think we're anything more than that, then we're missing it. You know, go to Romans 12, go to Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12. It all talks about the unity of the body, the parts of the body, and how we're supposed to be in this together. No one is greater, no one is less. The, the book of Acts, that's how the church started. They all sold this stuff. Nobody had more than anyone. No one had less than anyone. And you know what happened? It got screwed up. Why? Because they added us. <laughs> People mess everything up, man. Man. Fourth part fourth type of love is supernatural this agape everybody's heard that term agape love right it's this love that goes beyond our typical family friendship or romantic love it's a gracious selfless devotion that loves others regardless of whether one is loved in return it's this type of love that's beyond our human capacity okay we're going to get into how we do this, but I, just think about this for a second. You and I cannot love unconditionally. It, it's, it's impossible. Even those little babies that we love so much, man, sometimes, whoo. Yeah. Shabada, huh? My mother-in-law. To truly love unconditionally, we must draw our love from God and truly love God. We must demonstrate this love for others. So if we're going to live a life like Jesus, one cannot exist without the other. So how can we love like this? When we say it's supernatural, right? This supernatural type of love, that means it comes from something, or better yet, someone beyond the natural. God himself. We're invited in to tap into that supernatural love that only God provides. So... Galatians 5, fruits of the Spirit. It tells us that it's only possible to produce this type of love by walking in the Spirit. I'm going to tell you a story. I had a, uh, an Aunt Mamie. I grew up Portuguese side of my family, you know. Mamie was a beautiful woman. She, she had, uh, anybody grow, who's Portuguese in here? All right. <laughs> I just love doing that. We're in New Bedford, right? So, she had that, like, plastic runners on the floor. <laughs> plastic on the furniture. 
the, the glass fruit, the plastic fruit, the little animals made out of glass, and the living room you don't sit in, you know. Okay, good. <laughs> then you'll get this analogy. <laughs> I'm a little boy, and, and you know, I'm over at Aunt Mamie's house, and I see this shiny red apple on the coffee table, so I run over, and I grab the apple, and I'm like, whoo and I go to take a bite, and this thing is hard as a rock, almost break my teeth. And I'm like, what is this? So now it's got teeth marked from a little kid, and I just kind of do one of those things. A lot of times, we can produce what looks like fruit. You know, we can be loving to some people, we can be kind to some people, gentle in some situations and sometimes we're even self-controlled you know but i'm going to tell you this that counterfeit fruit is nothing like this fruit of the spirit the fruit of the spirit is is one fruit it's not all these other fruits that we've made it so you know you've got an orange an orange is all these things it's orange it's juicy it's nutritious it's tasty it's sweet and firm and all these things And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness and self-control. It's a whole fruit. It's a whole fruit. And it's real. It's not like that counterfeit stuff that Aunt Mamie was trying to peddle me. And so the only way we can tap into this fruit and possess this fruit is if we walk in the Spirit, it says. It says the deeds of the flesh are, you know, covetousness and division and factions and drunkenness, you know, all the fun stuff, right? And then it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. It's this perfect love. It's perfect joy. It's perfect peace. It's how Christ loves us. And that's what he wants for us. You know, a lot of people look at abundant life, right? You see in John 10.10, it says that the enemy came to kill, to steal, to destroy. He came to lie. He came to tell us that we could produce our own fruit, that we could make our own definition of love, that we could choose how to do this on our own and live the way we want, our best life now. But you know what? Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And so when we live... And we walk in the Spirit of God, this fruit begins to flourish in us. And so John 15 says that we can only produce this kind of fruit through abiding in Christ. And apart from Him, we can do nothing, He says. So when we do these things, the supernatural becomes natural. The ordinary becomes extraordinary. Let me say that again. When we walk in the Spirit of God, when we abide in our Savior, Jesus Christ... The natural, the supernatural rather, becomes natural for us. The ordinary suddenly becomes extraordinary. Who remembers that moment when they first met Jesus, when they first fell in love and they first realized grace? Yeah. Okay. I remember the first time. I mean, I went to church for 11 years and put on a religious mask and I, and I couldn't do it. Right? I kept failing. And then I, I went away, I lost everything, and I went away, and I had this um, moment, this revelation of who Christ was, and what grace was, and how lost I really was. And I had this realization 
that this salvation and new life was being offered to me as disgusting as I was. And I had this moment that I'll never be the same. I mean, I'll never be the same. I got up off the floor that day, a different man, by the glory of God, for the grace of God. And I'll tell you right now, I walked outside, and here I am in a drug program, right? Teen Challenge. I'm in a parking lot in Brockton, right? Not the most beautiful scenario or landscape you can imagine. But I remember hearing the birds. I remember seeing how blue the sky was. I remember the trees were green and the smell of the air and the feel of the breeze. And I was like, man... This ordinary day just became extraordinary. I'll never be the same. And that's what God does. When the love of God enters your life, when when God pours out His grace to that broken sinner, all of a sudden, you change. Life changes. So let me get into the discipleship thing. You know, but one more quote by Francis Chan. He says, do you know that nothing you do in this life will ever matter unless it's about loving God and loving the people he made? Nothing you do in this life will ever matter unless it's about loving him and loving others. And Jesus himself said it, that these are the two most important commandments. You know, what people don't realize is all he did was sum up the Ten Commandments in two phrases. The first four are about loving God. The second six are about loving others. And he's just saying, can you just do that right Instead of 615 more traditions and big tall hats, right? But the word Christian that we've adopted, it's only used in Scripture three times. Three times, that's it. But the word disciple is used over 300. Think about that for a minute. We've created definitions of what the word Christian means, but there is no redefining what disciple means. No redefining that. So our great commission, which is our second major point, is to make disciples, right? We talked about loving God, loving others, and what that love looks like and how to love like that because it's in the context of community, and now how does that apply? How do we put this into action? We make disciples, right? We're not going out and trying to pitch people something. We're not Jesus' PR people. We're not salesmen for Christ, you know? We're not trying to win arguments or win people over from atheism. No, what we're doing is, again, trying to love them back to life by entering into relationship with them. So Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, right? It says, and Jesus came up and he spoke to them saying this, all authority... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, here and there. Now go. Now go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Couple of points before I move on here. I just want you to think about this portion of scripture. First, he says, These are words that jump out at me every time I read it go, not stay. Go. And then he says, Make disciples. Okay? Baptize them and then teach them. Teach them everything that I commanded you, not suggested. Our marching orders, right? So these are his final earthly words to his disciples, to his people. So that means that they're important. 
I mean, I don't know about you, but if I knew I was leaving for good, I know that the last things I said would be the most important things I could impart to my friends, my loved ones, and the people I lead. And so Jesus says, this is what you need to do. So what does that mean for us as a church, right? Like I said, you could... You can build a church and have no disciples, but if you stop building disciples, you'll find the church. And so our job is to be intentional because no one accidentally creates a disciple. Did you know that? It is a very intentional act. It's invasive. It's uncomfortable. People hate it sometimes. It's accountability. It's correction. It's exhortation. As much as it is loving and encouragement and all that, it's a, it's a process. It's getting beyond the pleasantries and below the surface of our typical relationships. You know, a lot of us have just learned how to do relationship in the context of our families, our schools, and our communities in a lost and fallen world. So we have learned how to do relationship wrong. And so that's ingrained in us. It's our culture. It's who we've become because we've adapted. And if you think about it, right, you know, it's like a fish in water, I always tell my guys. The fish doesn't even realize that it's in water because it's just there. It's just water. That's how it lives. We don't realize, but the culture around us is just like that water is to that fish. You know, so we need to start looking at that water. We need to start recognizing that water. And that water is going to change. And we've got to swim in a... Cleaner water, if you will. In this day and age that we read about this in the Gospels, it was common for a young Jewish boy to seek out a rabbi and request to become his disciple. Am I good on time? Good, all right. So only an hour more, right? You just tell the second service to quietly come in. I'm just kidding. Paul preached for hours, man. People fell asleep and died while he preached. It was crazy. (laughs) All right. (laughs) We reel it back in. I'm a little ADD. I always got to go back to my notes, man. If a squirrel runs by, we're done. I'm chasing it. So, So these young Jewish boys, they would go and request, they, would, they, would, they were fans of these rabbis, and they would request to become their disciple. And these kids, from the time they were born, like they were just groomed and hopefully would one day become a rabbi or a Pharisee. That was like the greatest honor, honor in their culture. And so by five years old, you started going to school and memorizing the Torah, the Pentateuch, and all these different books of the Old Testament, as we call it now. You know, and... and by the time they were 10, there was like this certain expectation. And if they didn't meet that expectation, then they were like, beat it. Sorry you wasted five years of your childhood. Go back to your family now. Go be a fisherman, a carpenter, or a tent maker. And if you were really good, you were the best of that crew, then you stayed on. And then when you were 15, you'd go to these rabbis, and, and they test you intensely. You were, again, memorizing all of the scripture verbatim. And the best of the best of the best were kept. The rest, 15 years old, go home. All that tension, all that pressure to be a good religious person, right? And then if they were accepted, then they got to choose. They would request to the rabbi that I want to follow you, right? 
The yoke was a, a rabbi's personal interpretation of the Torah or his doctrine as we call it today. So in adopting this principle, he would spend all his time just pouring into this disciple if he was lucky enough to be chosen. They would teach him to essentially become just like him through his life and through his teaching. They spent all their time together. This wasn't a student in a classroom. This was intense life together stuff. And that's what it meant to be a disciple then. So when we read scripture and we hear the word disciple over 300 times, they are talking about this type of learning, this type of of relationship. It's not a check out when the bell rings kind of relationship. Okay? It was a very personal one with someone that impacted their lives very deeply. See, Jesus wasn't like other rabbis though. He sought out his own disciples and then he invited them to follow him. And again, this was an invitation to a deep personal relationship. Same thing, discipleship, but it was to join Jesus in his life. Now hear this. This is the very same invitation that each of us here today have received. That invitation to walk with Jesus, to enter into this discipleship process intimately, intensively. And that's what he's calling us to. That's the abundant life. See, this isn't the the chore of religion. It's not the superficiality of religion. It's the blessing of transformation and abundant life that he's invited us into. And yes, it's tough at times, but the reward is far greater than the cost. And as I said, there's a cost. Because the gospel is a life for a life. The gospel is a life for a life. And anyone that's telling you otherwise, anywhere, anything you read that tells you otherwise is heresy. Because the scriptures are so clear. Jesus died for us. Now he's telling us in Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's his words. That's not opinion. That's not interpretation. It says it the same way in every language. Take up your cross daily. I'll tell you what, in that first century, when you were talking to someone about taking up their cross in Rome, oh, they knew what that was. They walked down that road to Rome and they would see people dead on crosses with crows and other birds eating their flesh. Gruesome. And he knew, they knew the process to get there wasn't a pleasant one, that they had to drag this big heavy cross to their own death while they were mocked and spit on. So these people knew that. And he was saying to them, you need to do that. You need to pick up your cross and be ready to deny yourself. Put that old man to death. Bring forth that new creation. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another great theologian who who died for the sake of the cause in a concentration camp. He wasn't Jewish, but he was there fighting against the Holocaust and what Hitler was doing to all these Jews. But he writes this amazing book called The Cost of Discipleship while he's in this process. And he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Ooh. But what about... (laughs) Die to self. That's hard. 
don't know about you, but that's the hardest thing. And that's why he says daily, because Jesus knows that every morning we'll put that cross down. Daily. Moment by moment, if you're like me. I'm going to take, as 2 Corinthians 10, it says, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Because we do not war with the weapons of this world, right? So through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit in us and the Word of God, we're able. But if we put those weapons down, then we're as useless. We're sitting ducks. In order to make disciples, we first have to be disciples. You cannot give what you do not have. And this all meant, it's all meant again to happen in this context of community because we're created for relationship. That was the design. Relationship first with God and then relationship secondly with others. So it's first vertical, then horizontal. But not one at a time, it's simultaneous. And so if this relationship isn't right, then these aren't going to be right. And if these aren't right, then this isn't going to be right. Why is he saying in Scripture, if you come to the altar to pray, but you get a problem with your brother, you better put down your sacrifice and go make things right. Because I don't want to hear from you right now. You know what I told you to do. Love people. Ephesians 4.32 says that we're supposed to extend the same grace and forgiveness that was given to us. Okay then. Have we, has anyone offended us as much as we've offended God? I don't think so. So who are we to withhold forgiveness for something less than God has already forgiven us for? Again, it's an intentional pursuit. It means loving intentionally. That's how discipleship in this love thing, love God, love others, make disciples, they fit together. This is that core, irreducible. So it's entering into other people's lives intentionally. It's pursuing Christ intentionally. And the question I have for you all today is, is who's ready? Who's ready? My pastor came up with this. Well, I like to think the Holy Spirit did. But he says it all the time now. He's proud that the Holy Spirit spoke this through him. I have to give him a little jab every once in a while. We're we're close. But he says, we don't surrender to be done. We surrender to begin. And I'll tell you, that has sat with me ever since. Because unless you surrender, you can't begin this walk with Jesus. You can't enter into this love relationship that he's promised us. You can't even experience abundant life unless you surrender. So you can't be holding on to this world and then trying to move on to the next. And so he's called us to surrender. He's called us to this new life. So my question again today is, who wants to take that first step of surrender today? Who wants to pick up their cross and follow Jesus? Thanks for joining us today. If you want to connect with us, you can find us at newlifesouthcoast.com for any further information.